I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is Alex Dolan, the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides. If you like the show and want to support us, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others find the show, and it makes all of us very happy. So thank you so much for continuing to listen, and back to the show. Saint of Suicides. Created by Alex Dolan. We're sitting in the living room at Lynn's house. The walls are lined with books, and potted palms stand by the drawn blinds. Lynn owns one of those porcelain Manaki Neko cats, which are supposed to bring good luck but which I associate with the happy ending massage parlors in Chinatown. We all sit in a circle of folding chairs, looking like a poker game without the cards and tables. We're close to the anniversary. March 25th is a few days away. It hasn't even been two years. But around this time last year, a few folks had breakdowns. Lots of tears. Outside of group, I talked to a lot of people through their panic attacks. Diego called me a lot back then, and he's been the one texting me the most this week. Clementa already sobbed in last week's session, and she's on the brink of tears now. Everyone's on edge. History is repeating. Diego tried to hug me tonight. I'm not a hugger by nature, especially not with Diego. I'm touchy about being touched. I even joke about it on stage. I have intimacy issues. 
I was dating a guy who liked to FaceTime with me, and he'd end the calls by kissing the screen. Way too intimate for me. I know it might sound strange, but I can't kiss my phone screen. Think about it. I take my cell phone into the bathroom. I swipe my screen while I'm on the toilet. If I put my lips on my phone screen, I would die of sepsis in two minutes. <laughs> Diego was always the most vocal last year, and he's the one who speaks up now. Uh, I'm afraid of trains. Is anyone else having this problem? He keeps bringing this up. We're all afraid of trains. I mean, Christ, I moved to San Francisco just to avoid trains. Because in the East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, all the way from Richmond to Hayward, you can hear trains all day and all night. The moaning of freight horns, the grinding of Amtrak passenger cars, and the singular banshee shriek of the BART cars. At first, I didn't realize I was afraid of them. I just knew I had insomnia. It took months for me to realize that every time I heard a train, my heart knocked against my ribs and my forehead got wet. I started to sleep with earplugs, but they only worked so well. Those wheels grind against the rail at such a high frequency, I can still hear them. I went to DEF CON 2 and bought some noise-canceling headphones. I couldn't play music because the music just kept me up, so I downloaded any number of white noise apps. And I'd experiment falling asleep to English Meadows, Vermont Woodlands, thunderstorms, even blizzards. Some nights it worked. Some nights it didn't. I averaged maybe four hours of sleep a night. On to DEF CON 3! Drugs. A cornucopia of them. I tend to knock myself out with a one-two punch of Ativan and Ambien. And sometimes I mix in a little melatonin for insurance. That works more often than not, but my body has gotten used to the doses. So after two years, I'm up to 20 milligrams of Ambien a night and varying doses of the others. Whatever it takes to get the job done. Last year, when Diego brought up the train thing, I thought it was insightful. And it struck me that I might have developed a phobia. The more I read up on it, the more I realized the trains were keeping me up. Therapy only helped so much. Drugs only helped so much. When my lease came up, I moved to San Francisco. Where I live now, I can hear cars at all hours of the day, and even the air brakes from the Muni buses, but no trains. My rent is almost twice what I was paying in the East Bay for an apartment that couldn't fit a ping pong table. Worse yet, I finally had to buy a car so I could schlep out to Oakland to come to these weekly therapy sessions. Living in the city helps me sleep, but I'm still afraid of trains. No amount of therapy, group, or individual has gotten me over my phobia. I'm at DEF CON 4. This means I avoid taking BART altogether. When I still lived in the East Bay, I'd have to take it into the city. And I couldn't sit still without white-knuckling my armrests. Several times, I hyperventilated and had to run out at the wrong stop just to get my breath under control. This is why I put up with San Francisco rents. Most places I go, I don't need a train. If I do need a train to get somewhere, I don't go. At all. So when Diego brings up trains for the umpteenth time, I stifle a sigh. If Lynn had her way, we'd be talking about the people we've lost. 
and I am sick of talking about the people I've lost. I've lost a lot of them. Krish, Dad, Milo. We've been together so long, we all know the people we've lost. No sense in marinating in our grief. I thought the whole point of this was to feel better. I don't want to cry tonight. I know this has come up before. Have you noticed something different, or is it unusually strong now? I mean, it's worse lately. I feel like Lynn is trying to stop herself from frowning. But maybe I'm projecting. She's more patient than the rest of us. And that's why she's the therapist. Is it worse for anyone else? I was supposed to take my daughter on the wine train in Napa last month. And I couldn't do it. That was Clementa. Clementa places a hand on Diego's arm, which seems to soothe him. I like Clementa. She's a teacher in Oakland, which puts her in a unique situation compared to the rest of us. The shooters on our train probably came from her school. A few suspects were named, and some had been students of hers. Not that any of these suspects were charged, the case has gone cold. But the few names that had come up in the investigation had been affiliated with Clementa's school. She looks at her students differently now. I give her credit for staying at her job. On the other hand, Diego has always uh, rubbed me the wrong way. Since day one. At first I thought it was because he flirted with me. A survivor's therapy group being the worst forum imaginable for a pickup artist. But it's not just that. He's a greasy dude. Only a year younger than me. He dresses like he's 10 years older and behaves like he's 10 years younger. He wears suits, even on the weekends, mostly checks and plaid fabrics that are just this side of trying too hard. If you gave him a makeover, put him in normal clothes for someone his age, stripped the pomade out of his hair and sprayed off the cologne, he'd be cute. If you trained him to not be a hard-on, he'd be very cute. Like all of us, Diego lost someone in the shooting. His fiancée was killed and he was shot. He certainly has a right to his phobias, to his PTSD, like the rest of us. But there's something too urgent in how he talks, as if his tragedy has more gravitas than ours. I think that's what gets under my skin. We're all here for the same reason. All of us were there that night, March 25th, 2015. Almost two years ago, we all sat in a cramped car in the Oakland Coliseum BART stop, waiting to go home after the Warriors game. We all remember when the doors should have closed, but didn't. Saw the rush of boys come into the train with their stupid masks, snatching everything they could get their hands on. Assholes. None of us counted precisely, but we guess it was somewhere between 20 and 30 of them. You could tell they were young by their voices and bodies. Freshly minted adults with the gloss still on them. Because of the masks, we couldn't see their faces. Most of us were too scared to look at their faces anyway. 
Even Chris didn't look directly at them once the robbery started. And of the two of us, he was the brave one. Everyone remembers the train going quiet as we waited for them to get the robbery over and done with. But even in the quiet, there was still noise. I recall the sounds of the masked men grunting, swearing at us. The stifled shrieks of a woman as she was pushed. In the seat ahead of us, a woman muttered a prayer. A few people squealed in protest as the masked thieves pulled out their wallets or ripped the jewelry from around their necks. We kept quiet, but I could hear our breathing. We wanted to avoid any contact with them. So we slid toward the window and placed our phones and wallets on the seat by the aisle so they could grab it without touching us. Even then, when the hand came and swiped our possessions, I audibly sucked in a gust of air and held it, afraid to let it out. Maybe afraid they would steal that too. Then I remember hearing the woman. I felt like she must be crazy to put up a fight, trading insults with the boy. Then the sound of bone hitting one of those support poles, the woman dropping to the floor. My heart pounded in my ears. I... I know you. We all heard that too. There seemed to be static in the air, the pregnant tension of a thundercloud before the first lightning strike. Moments later, gunfire. So much noise. I closed my eyes and held my love tighter to me, trying to make us small. It didn't work. I remember a sweet metallic flavor on the roof of my mouth. As soon as the noise started, we shrunk into our seats, and then we slid down to the floor. I clutched my man tightly, but kept my eyes shut. People shouted when they were hit, and amid the screams of terror and pain and the faint smell of urine on the floor of the car, I believed that this would be my last night on Earth. Some passengers broke the windows and poured out of them or found their way to the emergency exit at each end of the car. The rest of us lay with our bellies on the floor. As I lay with my cheeks stuck to the tarry floor, I noticed a stream of blood traveling past my face. Then I realized it was my blood. Then I realized it wasn't only my blood. I felt around my body and found out that I wasn't just bleeding. I had emptied out my bladder too. And that was a little of what I was smelling. I tried to work this into a set once. I was shot once. I always thought if I saw a gun, I'd spring into action like Jean-Claude Van Damme. But actually, I peed my pants. So I was more like Jean-Claude Van Damme. They called it a flash rob. A cute name for something that's caused so much trauma. Large groups of young men gathered in one place at one time and created havoc by stealing anything they could carry or snatch. Flash robs usually happened in convenience stores. When I read up on them, I'd see stories about large groups of young men wandering down a random residential street, 
and robbing an individual the way a pack of dogs might chase down a rabbit. All of it typically happened in a minute or less. The victims were too overwhelmed to react, and the thieves escaped before the police could come. A flash rob on a train was rare. A gunfight at a flash rob was unheard of. Funny how the cops couldn't tell us the number of criminals, but they could pinpoint the number of victims. 26. Most of the shooters had Glocks, each one loaded with 15 rounds, so plenty of bullets to go around, and a crowd so dense that they were bound to hit someone. Nine people died, including one BART policeman. 17 were injured. In addition, two of the shooters died, gunned down by the BART police. I don't count those two in the victim tally. Some refer to the incident as the BART massacre. Some dramatize it by calling it March 25th or 325, as if it has the same weight as 9-11. You see your share of 325 t-shirts in the Bay Area, and they make me want to puke. None of us in the room give it a proper name. We call it the shooting, the incident, or the night. In my opinion, it doesn't deserve any more than that. It's not like it's a fucking holiday. Lynn Jackson put together the survivors group a few months after the shooting. She's a therapist based in Oakland with a lot of experience treating PTSD. And now she volunteers her services every Wednesday. We meet at her home. The group is for anyone who was affected by the incident and wants to come. I found out about the group from my psychiatrist. Lynn is the backbone of the group. She's a large, imposing woman, almost six feet tall with thick limbs. Her voice has a calming effect on me. She listens to us all without judgment, and I try to emulate her degree of patience in my own life, whether I'm on stage or on bridge patrol. The other tried and trues include Diego Quezada, Clementa Ibarra, Laverne Beckett, a scientist, and Paul Barnes, a hedge fund guy. We have nothing in common except being on that train and a fondness for the Golden State Warriors. I want to hear more from someone who doesn't usually share. Laverne is usually quiet, but then again, she's an academic. That scientist mind of hers might be churning every moment. But I'd love to hear what she's feeling. At this point, I'll take something from Paul. Lynn forces the conversation to move beyond train phobias. Has anyone noticed anything else as we approach the anniversary? I haven't been eating. Me neither. Well, I've been eating, but not a lot. It's corny, but it makes me smile. In my classroom, I'm irritable. The kids clown around. That's what kids do but I'm used to being able to diffuse it, or if not, at least take it in stride. But I've snapped at them a couple of times. I don't like myself, and I do. I know the men on the train are too old to still be in school, but it doesn't stop me from being suspicious, and I hate myself for it. Other than the two shooters who were killed, the police never did arrest anyone, not even with all the cameras there. 
The only thing they can tell us is how all the suspects were probably 18 to 20 years old. And they all most likely came from the Fruitvale area. I suppose if I were a teacher in Fruitvale, my mind would wander from time to time. I don't blame Clementa for her stray suspicions. Haven, what about you? Anything new? Um, I've noticed I'm not enjoying Lucha Libre as much as I used to. <laughs> Can't help myself. It's a cheap joke, but it gets a chuckle from the group, so it's worth it. I'm self-medicating. More than usual. These last few weeks, I've hit DEFCON 5, which means I wash my pills down with wine. Lynn is waiting for me to say more, but tonight, I'm all tapped out. I think about Glenn, the man I talked off the bridge last night, and I wonder how he's doing. I hope Glenn is safe. I've heard most people talked out of a suicide attempt won't make a second attempt, but I don't know where the people who say that get their data. Kurt Cobain kept trying until he got it right. I jolt. Because since the incident, sudden noises make me jumpy. Part of the PTSD. My fists clench when the bell chimes. And when I unclench them, I've dug crescents into the palms. I was wondering if he'd make it. We have someone new joining us. He was on the train with the rest of you. It isn't like Lynn to surprise us. Especially since she knows how much we hate surprises. Took him long enough to get here. He just found out about the group. She returns with a tall man in tow. Everyone, this is Wesley. He gives us a hesitant wave. He's never been in therapy. I can tell by how he fidgets. Wesley is tall and dark. The group has its third black member. He has a shaved head and a trim body neatly packed into a sport coat, khakis, and white bucks. He's dressed like someone who went to prep school in the 80s. Or when Kanye first broke mainstream in the aughts. It's hipster chic, but it doesn't bother me. He has a gentle face and a kind smile, and his manner suggests a lack of pretense. The way he unfolds a chair without being instructed to do so, and the way he sinks into it, one foot rolled to the side as he makes himself comfortable, hands folded across his lap. He doesn't care what we think about him, and once he's settled... He looks around at all of us, now making eye contact, giving us a genuine hello with his expression, to let us know he wants to listen to us. I like him, I smile at him, and I don't always smile at strangers. Diego is watching how I'm looking at Wesley. From the corner of my eye, I can see him frown and cross his arms over his chest. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. 
With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Victor Blossom had come in early to the office, leafing through some of the images Gibson had shared with him. He kept going back to the green Lucha Libre mask, the way the blood had leached into the fabric. He suspected the mask was in close proximity at the point of impact. He tried to understand what that meant. Perhaps he was overthinking, wanting the case to be more than a suicide. A round, red face appeared in his doorway. I heard you were at the train splatter this morning. Aren't you in homicide? Detective Bastian Fennell. Bastian, sometimes Basty, was short for Sebastian. Blossom didn't like him and avoided him whenever he could. I was just observing. Helping out your girlfriend? Blossom glanced at the photo of his wife and son on his desk. Not helping. Just observing. Eh, pretty cut and dry, right? Just a loner killing himself on the tracks. Maybe. We'll find out. Fennel's face hovered in the doorway with a hopeful and expected glow, apparently waiting for more. When Blossom went back to his photos, Fennel eventually removed himself. Well, good luck with that, old man. Gibson had shared a copy of the medical examiner report, and he'd been reading the findings. According to forensics, the train's impact with the body corroborated the engineer's statement that the victim had been kneeling on the tracks. Gibson was right. There was something strange about the case. The medical examiner had done his best to piece together the body parts, but some had disintegrated. They hadn't found one of his hands. The skull had been crushed and looked like a deflated soccer ball. The eyes had liquefied. A photo of the reassembled body, cleaned up by the M.E. and laid out on stainless steel like doll parts, reminded Blossom of the times he'd almost finished a jigsaw puzzle, only to find a few pieces missing. The autopsy produced a grim discovery and Blossom was impressed that the medical examiner had found it at all. A SIM card had torn through the soft tissues between the ribs, embedding itself in the heart. Other shards from the shattered phone had torn through the soft tissues as well. The ME handed it over to the techs to see what they could pull up, and they got it to work. The SIM card was linked to an account owned by one Raymond Ocampo, 42 years old, from Oakland. Blossom offered to sit in on Gibson's call to Raymond's wife, Deidre Acampo. Is this about Kevin? Gibson looked at Blossom. Who's Kevin, ma'am? He's my son. When is the last time you saw Kevin? Forever. He keeps his distance from the family. Gibson looked at Blossom for suggestions on how to proceed. Is there anyone who might know where he is? Deidre Acampo gave them the phone number of Amalia Booker, his girlfriend. He in trouble again? We hope not. Thank you for your time. Too early to let her know about her son? 
We'll give her the bad news when we've confirmed it. They phoned Amalia Booker's cell. Blossom introduced himself. You're calling about Kevin? Do you know how we can talk to him? Uh, he's been gone for a few days. Have you filed a missing persons report? He usually comes home eventually. <sighs> Would you mind talking to us at the station? And could you bring a photograph of Kevin? While they waited for Amalia Booker to arrive, Gibson and Blossom found out what they could about Kevin Acampo. He was 20 years old with a criminal record, several arrests for assault and grand theft, served six months for driving a car through the window of a jewelry store after hours. He ended up trying to sell a Rolex to an undercover officer and was subsequently arrested. Acampo had been suspected in a number of other crimes, including two homicides. Notably, he had been questioned two years ago during the BART train massacre, but there wasn't many notes in the file about what came out of this questioning. Apparently, he'd gone to the same high school as the two shooters who died that night. Amalia Booker arrived a half hour later. She was in shock. Blossom knew the look. Gibson led her to the morgue with Blossom picking up the caboose. But even with him in the rear, Amalia deferred to him as either the older, or more likely, the mailer of the two. It irritated him. He regretted agreeing to tag along. He wasn't sure that he was doing Gibson any favors by being here. Do you think you might have made a mistake? That's why you're here. He could have said something more uplifting like, let's hope so. But he didn't want to lead her on. Between the SIM card and the missing man, he was pretty sure Kevin Acampo was lying in the morgue. Amalia gave them a photograph of Kevin. It was a Christmas selfie of the couple. Kevin and Amalia smiled at the camera, with Kevin in a red Santa hat and a short, sparsely decorated Tannenbaum in the background. He was a handsome kid, aside from the neck tattoo. There was something even sweet about him. He was Filipino, so dark hair, light skin, like the engineer described. Can we borrow this? Amalia said a prayer before they went inside the morgue. Shoulders slouched and spine wilting. A woman hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. She seemed tough, but she was unprepared for what lay beneath the sheet. Once they slid out and uncovered the body, she couldn't hold herself together. Amalia trembled. Jesus, help me. She took in the crudely assembled pieces. Blossom had seen worse in the morgue, but not by much. Even cleaned up and fitted together, this heap barely looked human. Why are you showing me this? What am I supposed to identify? Amalia approached the body and, despite its condition, hunched over the remains. The tough facade vanished, and she began to sob. Gibson and Blossom waited behind her, giving her space and time to grieve, standing still as sentries with their hands folded over their groins. It might be him. Honestly, I can't tell. She needed to sit down or she might collapse. Blossom prepared himself to brace the woman if she fell. Why would you show someone something like this? Would you be able to identify this? I'm really sorry we have to do this. That's the last time I'm ever going to see my man. That's what I'm going to remember when I think about him. Someone needed to keep them on task, and if someone had to be the villain, Blossom was willing to assume the role. Are you saying that is Kevin? It might be. I assume it is, but I can't tell for certain. I mean, look at what's left of him. Do any of these look familiar? While Amalia took the bags, Gibson discreetly drew the sheet over the body again and slid it back into the wall. 
Amalia rotated the bag in her hand. Something sparked a level of familiarity, and she leaned in for a closer look. That's his sneaker. Are you sure? Christmas gift. She pointed to something on the ankle. You can see the extra printing here. I, I customized them with his initials. Gibson and Blossom took a closer look. Sure enough, along the ankle were printed two letters. K.O. Blossom had seen this when they first collected the evidence and thought it might be some kind of branding gimmick, a boxing term stitched on the shoes. Nothing of the sort, as it turned out. Amalia Booker had also brought Blossom and Gibson a comb that contained some of Kevin's hair. It wasn't a perfect scenario, but the lab could run tests to confirm the genetics matched, even though it might take weeks to get results. Back in the hallway, Amalia continued to weep once the door to the morgue shut behind her. She walked to the wall and braced herself against it, quivering. Amalia finally looked at Gibson and Blossom again. It appears we have Kevin. I'm afraid we have to ask you some questions before you leave. Now? Are you serious? I'm afraid so. It will only take a few minutes, and then you can go home. Blossom didn't want to take her to an interrogation room, so they went to his office. Still, the room felt cold. With a poured concrete floor, drop ceiling, and two pendant lamps that illuminated the space as if it were a pool hall, Blossom sat behind the desk with Gibson perched on the edge. Amalia focused on Gibson, perhaps seeking some form of kinship. Did you grow up around here? Born and raised in Oakland. What part? East Oakland. So pretty. You got that African look. Healthy, like you just showered in coconut oil. When I saw you, I thought you'd have one of those Nigerian accents. Nope. Oakland born and bred. You lose anyone? My uncle was shot by a random crazy a few years ago. Instead of helping, a few kids filmed him as he bled out. They posted the video to YouTube. Jesus. <laughs> On the plus side, that's how they caught the guy. They had him on tape running away after he shot my uncle. So, silver linings. Gibson described what had happened to her boyfriend, sparing her some of the more ghastly details. He knelt down and let a train hit him? That don't sound like Kevin. Did you notice any changes in him recently? Did he seem different, depressed, withdrawn? Kevin? No, he was happy. We were happy. Maybe you have the wrong man. Blossom knew when the test came back, they would more than likely identify Kevin Acampo as the deceased, which would only make her crash into despair that much more meteoric. The sooner Amalia accepted his death, the sooner the police could uncover what had happened. He had a history of confrontation. Any recent fights? Any disagreements with acquaintances? No. People like Kevin. Listen, Kevin might not have been a role model, but he was a good man. People did like him. He had friends. He had a good soul. He wouldn't do something like this to himself. Can you give us names of people close to him? Why? The more people we talk to, the better we can understand what happened to Kevin. If it is Kevin. Blossom looked down at his hands. You think someone might have gotten him to do this? Boys dare each other to do stupid things all the time. If it ends up being Kevin, and it's a big if, I'll bet someone put him up to it. I guarantee you that. Amalia... A man is laying in our morgue. He was struck and killed by a train. Maybe it's Kevin and maybe it's not. But the more we know, the faster we can get to the bottom of this. So can you help us with some names? Fine, fine, fine. Tear me off some paper. Amalia Booker gathered her purse 
and made for the door at a funerary pace, still in shock. We'll be in touch very soon. Gibson offered compassion, but didn't promise anything. Certainly not relief, satisfaction, or closure. Amalia's suffering hadn't truly started. Detectives? One thing. Technically, Gibson wasn't a detective, but Blossom didn't correct her. What's that? The conductor said he was praying? Then I think you may have a different man in there. Kevin was good to me, even with his flaws. But that man didn't pray a day in his life. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.